0: Let's bow and pray together for a minute. For those of you that have that great sense of God holding you, not letting you go, just lean into that even more so. Aware of all the stuff that goes on around us that would tug and pull us away from God. And for you, friend, that feel like you're free-falling and you want God to get a hold of you. Him right now, Father, I need a Father. Hold on to me. Let me know Your strength. The security of Your embrace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Alright, thanks band, singers. appreciate the help today. In a moment I'm going to be reading from the book of Genesis, third chapter if you want to find that, get ready to read along. We'll have a number of verses that we're going to read together, so I encourage you to do that with us. Well, with these high school graduations that have been going on, uh, as I am wont to do, I started reflecting. You do that kind of thing? Stuff goes on around and makes you think about stuff that has happened in your past. And so I was thinking about my senior year and stuff that went on then. And, of course, uh, the biggest thing in my life at that point was basketball. And uh, we had an incredibly uh, exciting beginning to our basketball season my senior year. We had been uh, ranked in the preseason polls very high in our state. And uh, we came out of the gate real fast. We won five games. Uh, had no losses, Uh, we were getting write-ups in the paper, reporters were hanging around our games, we had big crowds showing up, it was thrilling. And then something happened. I don't know exactly what happened, uh, but we started falling apart. We started losing games and crowds began to go down and reporters weren't around and stories weren't being written and we were no longer in that state ranking poll. And what had turned out to be such a good, strong beginning suddenly began to go very, very badly. and and, and went south very quickly. You've had those kinds of circumstances happen in your life. Maybe uh, you had an exciting start to your marriage and it just was packed with potential and joy and, and all this prospect and it was soaring for a little bit and then something happened. And that good beginning began to have a bad kind of outcome. Or maybe the same thing happened in your parenting. Uh, this child comes into your life so potentially packed and so much fun and such a delight and all of a sudden some things begin to happen at some age and some stage and it all begins to turn a corner and it's like really, really hard. Or maybe that happened with your job and your career and you were thrilled to get the credentials that you got and to get the job that you got and you loved the colleagues and the work environment and, and the productivity and something happened. Some dynamic changed or whatever and it began to take a, a turn the bad side. That's our story with God. What a tremendous beginning when in the beginning God created, spoke it all into being, that which had not been, became. So all the the things of this world and then humanity and with every refrain of creation, God declared, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then we get to chapter 3. And we are in the book of Genesis chapter 3 introduced to a fourth character. To this point, we've met God. We've met man. We've met woman. And now we meet one that's simply referred to as the serpent. Now, later in the story, you'll come to discover that this serpent has a number of names, sometimes referred to as the devil, which means slanderer. He's one that will slander about you and say things ill of you. He's also known as Satan, which means accuser. And so he, he takes it as his job to accuse you to you or to others or even to God about what a low life you are, what a pitiful excuse for a human being you are. So if you ever have those kind of messages banging around inside of you, that's who they come from, the accuser. And then uh, uh, Jesus referred to him in the Gospels as the ruler of this world. The Pharisees referred to him as Beelzebub, the prince of demons. The Apostle Paul referred to him as the god of this age. There are a lot of other designations, and there's a whole lot that we could say about the evil one or our enemy. But we're not here to talk about him. We're here to talk about God and you and what God's up to. But he's a part of the story today. And so I'm going to invite you to uh, open your Bible to the third chapter of Genesis, and we're going to read along together uh, the whole chapter. So it's a lot of verses. If, If you find yourself getting distracted when a lot of verses get read... Then uh, ask your neighbor to pinch you or something so that you can stay with us as we come back to it to discuss it. But what we've been saying for these weeks is that there is a great story. There is this huge meta narrative that involves God, that involves you. And it has a beginning and it has an end, and we know a little bit about the beginning and the end, and then there's a whole lot that happens in between that's not just his story, history but it's also our story. And today we're introduced to this character who works against the plans of God, who uses lies and deceit to try to separate mankind from our Creator, from our Redeemer, from our lover, God. And let's watch how this unfolds as we get into the text. We'll pick up with verse 1. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the, the book of Genesis is filled with first. The first time for this, first time for that. This is the first time to pass the buck. <laughs> the man said, The woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because... You listened to your wife and ate from the tree which I commanded you. You must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken for dust. You are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat, And live forever? So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, this would be that moment for you to pinch that person that has begun to doze. All right. Let's quickly review what happened in that whole piece of the narrative, and then we want to unpack a little bit of it, and then we're going to be through, okay? So uh, let's, let's get there together. All right. So, first of all, we see that the serpent enters the picture for the first time, and immediately we begin to discern his character. He twists the Word of God. Now, God has a history of speaking into this world and speaking into our lives, and it behooves us for him to not only speak, but for us to listen. And one of the things that uh, happens for God followers is they seek to learn to listen well. It's a thing that you grow into more and more. And one of the things that our enemy seeks to do is to twist the Word of God so that what you think you heard him say isn't exactly what he did say. And so Satan comes up to the woman and he says, I can't believe God. He told you that you couldn't eat of any of the fruit of any of these trees? Of course, you were with us last week. You read chapter 2. You know that God didn't say that. God said, I don't want you to eat the fruit of one particular tree. Have at it for all the rest of it. But that one particular tree, I don't want you to eat from. And so Eve tries to clarify that with our enemy who had twisted that word. Now notice how she does that. She goes, there's just one tree that God said that we should not eat of. In fact, He said, don't touch it. Now if you remember last week, God just said, don't eat it. He didn't say, don't touch it. Why did she say, and God told us not to even touch it? It's almost like she'd been knocking that around in her head a little bit and had begun to think you know what he said don't eat it but I might touch it he might not want me to touch so she got this whole thing going on and she has begun to exaggerate some of the things that in fact God had told her you ever do that? God says something to you about a relationship. God says something to you about a directive in your life. God says something to you about a course correction that He wants to see happen. And you get the gist of it, but you kind of add a piece to it. You embellish. You exaggerate it a little bit. That that, uh, messes with us. And it started way back in the beginning. We further see uh, the character of our enemy in that he is a liar. Because... She said, yes, God said, don't eat this or you'll die. And Satan said, you won't die? Come on. See, what happens is that if you eat that, you become like God. And so he's not only a liar, but he's a deceiver. Because he taps into these things that God's placed in us, like be a reflective image of God. And he amplifies that in deceptive ways to say, be a god. And that's basically what he was saying to Eve. He, he's not going to kill you. In fact, if you eat of this, you'll become a god like God. He lied, and he deceived. And so they ate, and immediately they knew they had done a bad thing things did open up to them and they saw some stuff that made them lose their innocence and shame overcame them and they hid from God. The lover of their soul. The breath of their soul. The one who delighted in the picturesque language of Genesis to walk through the garden in the cool of the day with them and they hid which raises the question you ever try to hide from God I mean you know God's big you know God's out there you you know God's all over but there's just something that goes on in you and this shame thing happens and this shirking back thing happens and you just kind of hide from God maybe you don't come around church anymore maybe you you don't go around your small group anymore and you're afraid to even touch the book much less open the book and kind of read the book because it might expose you in some kind of way And so, they're hiding, and God comes forth with a question. Where are you? Which is to be understood to us, God knows. He's not trying to find them. It's not hide and seek for God. He wants to make sure they know. They're in hiding. And they feel so shame-filled that they don't want to be in His presence. Let me just highlight this for us that when God asks us questions, it's not because He's looking for answers. It's because He wants to make sure that we comprehend the reality that that answer reveals. And so, as we go through this little narrative, where are you? Are you hiding? Is shame a reality in your life? Does guilt feel like it's heaped upon you everywhere you go? There's this little cloud thing going on. You just know God's kind of ticked and He's just waiting to bust you. Where are you? Because that's a bad place to be. And the good news is God didn't want Adam and Eve there and He doesn't want you there. And the only reason He's asking where you are is because He wants things to come back together well they were hiding they tried to bring together some fig leaves and that's the best our hiding does fig leaf covering ain't much seen the pictures I thought about bringing a couple out and go, no that you know I, I found some great 15th century art and I'm like no we won't look at that in here today but anyway uh, it's just not much covering And whatever you try to to cover yourself with, your accomplishments, your good behavior, your good deeds, your generosity, your uh, holy speech, whatever. Fig leaves. Fig leaves. Fig leaves. And so we come to the point in the story where God judges. And He goes to the serpent. And He doesn't just, like, whack out the serpent's legs. Okay, you're on your belly from now on, you know. But he goes, you know what? This is the beginning of the end of your story. Because someday the offspring of Eve will take his heel and crush your head. Oh, you'll get a few licks and a few bruises on the heel of man through the years. But a day is coming when the offspring of Eve will take his heel and crush your head. And of course, that's... a. A little foreshadowing, a little foretelling of the coming of Christ, which will happen thousands of years from the point in the story that we are right now. But already at this point, God is uh, giving us glimpses. He's not surprised by any of this. None of this has caught Him in, in in an unaware state that He doesn't know what He's going to do and He's wringing His hands. His sovereignty is fully in place and fully intact. He's in charge of the whole scenario. There's going to be a day that the Redeemer takes care of all of this. The accounts will be settled. But then he also talks to the woman and he judges her. And he talks to the man and he judges him. And it's a very interesting thing that he says in verse 16 that her desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. It's a very interesting phrase. Uh, I'm going to get ahead of the story just a little bit. Next week we'll be in chapter 4, the whole story of Cain and Abel. But in chapter 4, verse 7, when Cain is about to really screw some stuff up and God's trying to intercede, he says in a very similar way to, to Cain with respect to Abel, sin is crouching at your door desiring to have you. You must rule over sin. 16, Eve, your desire is for your husband, but he will rule over you. Same kind of phrase, which kind of uh, teases out the meaning of what desire has to do with. Sin is crouching at your door, Cain, because it wants to rule over you. Eve, your heart's desire is for your husband. You want to rule over your husband but He is going to rule over you. Now, last week we fully got into creative intent. Before the fall, God had dreamed that woman, in her submissive way to a husband, in her love and in her respect, in her honor for her husband, she would reveal and reflect His glory to a watching world. And a husband who would sacrificially love his wife and give of himself and pour himself out uh, for his wife would gloriously reflect the person of God. That was creative intent. That was all before the fall. But now the fall has happened and all that is marred. All that is busted and broken. And so the woman's going to try to rule the man. The man's going to rule and abuse the woman. And it's going to be a mess because it's all been marred. Marriage is marred, and reflecting God's image is marred. But that's not the end of the story. It's a sad point in the story, but it's not the end of the story. God gives hope for the future. And does so in a number of little, maybe inconspicuous kinds of ways. For one, Adam then names Eve. Right? God had allowed him to name all of the animal world and now he gets to give a name to Eve. And he gives her the name Eve which means life giver. And it's this like affirmation that life will be coming forth from her and from all the women thereafter. And then God takes animals and takes their skin, kills them, takes their skin and forms and fashions, clothing for the inadequate fig leaves for Adam and Eve. Again, another foreshadowing, foretelling of what will happen in the redemptive picture because later in the story, over and over again, we'll see garments being reflective of God's saving work. And in fact, at the very last book, Uh, at the end of the story, the book of Revelation, we're told that for those who belong to God and who will be caught up into the new kingdom when Christ returns, they will have garments of righteousness. And so this garment thing uh, is a theme throughout the entire Bible, and it begins right here at the beginnings in chapter 3 where He gives them garments. But it comes at a price. Something had to lose its life. Animals had to lose their lives that their skins could be made into garments. It's another foreshadowing of Christ who will be losing His life so that we may have garments of righteousness. And so it goes with hope, with promise for a future. Now that's a little bit of the retelling. I am very aware that this text and the entire story of beginnings is just packed with problems for a lot of people. Uh, Some consider it to be so ancient and so anachronistic that it's just totally irrelevant to our day and to our time and and modern ways of thinking and the scientific age, all these kinds of things. So there's no way I can address all that in the few minutes that we have remaining, but I do want to address two problems. And maybe someone in the room today Uh, This represents an issue for you, or you have a friend for whom it represents an issue, and maybe this will help us with the conversation. But one of those is the problem of freedom. And I'll come back to that. And then the other is the problem of judgment and hell. And we'll get into that in just a moment. But with respect to the problem of freedom, the way this story unfolds Many of us in modern Western culture don't like the idea of there being this authority person who has say over our lives. We like this, this idea of autonomy and that I'm my own person, I'm my own boss, I'm my own, we won't use that language, but I'm my own Lord is what that amounts to. So we don't like that whole idea of the whole authority thing. I mean, what is the deal? They took a bite of a piece of fruit and God freaks out. What is? What kind of control freak is God? Who needs a God like that if there is a God is the way some of that problematic reasoning plays out. You ever had those thoughts? You know anybody that wrestles with that? Basically, that comes from a mindset that negatively defines freedom. And therefore, defines freedom as the absence of confinement, the absence of restraint. And I'm suggesting to you today that freedom is ever so much more than the absence of confinements and restraints. In fact, there can be a very liberating thing that happens with restraints that happen in our lives. Restraints can liberate us when they fit the reality of our nature, when they fit the reality of our capacity. For example, I, I shared with you last week the story of, theoretically, two skydivers that jumped out of the plane at the same time. You remember the story? And, and uh, one of them who was so bent on having total and absolute freedom, uh, she decided she wasn't going to be constrained by a little pack on her back that had a parachute inside and so in all of her freedom, as she is you know, soaring through the sky, hurtling toward the earth, she is in fact in bondage to gravity. She thinks she's free, but she's in bondage. But the other one who has chosen the restraint of a pack with a parachute in it has in fact chosen not only the better way, but the way of life. And that restraint will allow her to have the freedom to then ascend to the earth in a life-sparing kind of way. So that's what we talked about last week. Let me amplify that a little bit more with this thought. Let's say that someone is musically inclined, musically gifted, musically talented. If that musically inclined, gifted, talented person submits himself to a discipline, to a restraint of practice, let's say on the piano... Then after some period of time, those gifts, those talents are fully released, fully liberated by the restraint of practice. So that that individual uh, now has a capacity to freely create and play music that stirs, that moves, that inspires. Because it fit his nature. Now, on the other hand, let's say that a guy who is about 5 foot tall and weighs about 120 pounds dreams of playing in the National Basketball Association, being a professional NBA player. And he's awkward. He's not athletic. He's clumsy. He has no uh, sports capacity really about himself. He just has this idea, I'd love to be a professional athlete. I mean, after all, they make like $10 million a year. That guy can submit himself to all kinds of practice, all kinds of discipline, all kinds of athletic restraints, and it will not make much difference because it doesn't fit him. He doesn't have it in him to be a professional athlete someday. So with respect to those skydivers, the reason why a backpack with a chute inside was appropriate is because they didn't have wings. They were not fit to fly. Now, if in fact they had wings, they don't need the restraint of a parachute because they are fit. They have a nature for flying. But since they don't have a nature for flying, they need some kind of restraint that brings the freedom of free-falling. Are you with me? And so it is with the things of this world. We are fit for God. Our nature is to be with Him, in Him, uh, connected to Him. And so when we accept, freely accept, some restraints, some disciplines, some practices about our lives, it liberates us, it frees us to know God in incredibly special, close, and intimate ways. The greatest confinement that leads to the greatest liberation is love. Relational love. I'm not talking about you love baseball, you love hot dogs and ice cream and all that. I'm talking about relational love. It's a confinement. Friends, you can't enter relational love with anybody without some kind of confinement and restraint. You give up something of your individuality so that you can know the freedom that comes with intimacy and closeness. It's a trade-off that happens in every kind of relationship. And so it happens with God. You lose some independence, you gain the freedom of intimacy. Now, healthy love relationships are mutual. Mutual in what is given up and in what is gained. An unhealthy relationship one person's doing all the giving, the other person's doing all the getting, which puts the getter in a position of taking advantage or of abuse or of making some kind of use, like an object, of the person. You follow me? So, if in the case of God, if there's not mutuality, I give up something and I take on some restraints and some constrictions for the sake of intimacy with God and he doesn't give up anything, it doesn't work. He becomes this ogre, tyrant, uh, kind of uh, uh, oppressive, imposing power on my life. But if he mutually gives up and takes on constraints Himself for the sake of our relationship, and I do that for the sake of our relationship, then together we know this wondrous freedom of intimacy between the two of us. And friends, that is exactly what happened. God, who has no limitations, who has no boundaries, who can do anything, anytime, any way that He wants to, took on constraints, took on these parameters to his life to limit himself so that he could relate to us. And he comes into this world in the person of Christ. He comes not to be served but as one who serves. He dies this sacrificial atoning death on our behalf, paying the price for our fallenness and for our sin. He's given way more than most of us will give in a lifetime. for the sake of our freely being able to relate to one another. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ constrains us. So that's the problem of freedom. I think God has addressed that wondrously so. But let me just say a brief word about the problem of judgment in hell. Because in our culture, a lot of people cannot conceive. It seems so incongruous that you would have a God who is love, but a God who also judges, or who has wrath, or who has anger. How can a loving God send people to hell? You ever heard that question? Well... Part of that is couched in cultural beliefs. In our modern, kind of drifting into postmodern culture of the West, we can conceive and we can appreciate the picture and the image of a God who is loving, who is forgiving, who is gracious, who doesn't really punish anybody for anything that they do. He just finds a way to get along with it. We can handle that whole idea. You bring some justice and some accountability, some punishments in there, and a lot of us have a big problem with that. But you know what? There are some other cultures in some other parts of the world. It's just the reverse. Some of the other cultures on the other side of the planet have absolutely no problem with an idea of a God who is just and a God God who settles issues and, and, and settles accounts. But you start talking about this turn-the-other-cheek stuff and forgiving enemies and so on, that's very problematic to them. And that's just one illustration that I can give you out of dozens of cultural beliefs that shape our appreciation or lack thereof of God and the theology about God. Here's the point. If God is, in fact, transcultural, He is over all the various cultures of the planet then does it not make sense that at any given point in history as cultures change, He is going to be offensive to this culture at some point. He's going to be offensive to this culture at another point. He's going to be offensive to another culture at another point because if He is the standard of truth and the standard of rightness, at some point He's going to offend everybody. At some point, His presence will bring a corrective to anyone and to everyone because He's over and above All of our culture. And this just happens to be one that's in the West. I don't like the idea of a just God who judges and punishes. He just may need to bring a corrective to us in our thinking about that. But the the second and the last thing that I'll say about that is this. We tend to think in terms of relational love that that means you'll never have anger. And the fact of the matter is, anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love. In fact, often, anger and wrath are birthed out of love. You want to tick me off, mess with my kids. Because I love them. And I don't want to see you mess with them. You want to tick me off, be my kid, and screw your own life up. You follow me? Because I love him, I don't want to even see him screw his own life up, much less somebody else's. And so that stirs something within me and that's the way it works with you and with God. God has a dream. God has a vision. God has a creative intent. And every time you do stuff that sabotages that, it makes Him angry. It turns wrath in such a way that He wants to work with you redemptively. He wants you to get back to what the story is all about. And so that brings in pictures of chastisement and discipline and punishment and so on like that, ultimately it brings about the, the picture of judgment. Now, let me unpack that just a little bit more in terms of the idea of judgment. Tim Keller says, since we were originally created for God's immediate presence, it's only before His face will we thrive, will we flourish, and achieve our highest potential. To lose God's presence is hell. See, we were fit for Him. It's our nature to be with Him, like Him, connected to Him. To not have that, to lose that, is hell. You go, well, Scott, the Bible talks about, you know, this like lake of fire and people are weeping and wailing and gnashing their teeth and there's like this eternal torment and so on. What is that all about? Well, I think C.S. Lewis helps us with that when he says people in hell are miserable not because they want God in heaven. They are miserable because they are being consumed by the flames of their own unchecked pride, their unchecked paranoia and self-pity, and their certainty that everyone else is wrong and an idiot. That's what is consuming them like flames. This is what Paul said. The Apostle in Romans chapter 1, verse 24. God woos us. God pursues us. God seeks to embrace us. But we continue to resist. We continue to rebel. We continue to thumb our nose at Him. And the Scriptures say, okay, He gives us up to our desires and to our proclivities. We don't want Him and He doesn't butt in. And having that kind of removal from Him is hell. So Lewis puts it this way, in the end, there are really only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. Or those to whom God says, Thy will be done. You want distance from Me? You get it forever that's the story God creates God breathes life into us God delights in us there's this fall we go through this period of where he seeks to redeem us and to restore us to creative intent and the question before us is where are you in the story are you hiding are you afraid? Are you mad at whatever your image of God is all about? Has it all been unduly influenced by fallen broken religious stuff, or broken and fallen parental systems and family systems? Do you really see God for who God is? Catch something of what His heart for you is? Where are you in the story? Let's pray. So, Father, for the friend who is lost in the story, who hasn't been getting it, who in fact has been running or hiding, I pray that, Lord, You'd bring it together today. Help it to make sense. Help our hearts be drawn you. Save us. Forgive us. Enfold us again into your eternal family, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.